Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cover. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, should you sign up for cryonics? So I've been working my way through this ebook that is essentially just a republishing of a debate that Robin Hansen and Eliezer Yudkowsky had online. These are two prominent futurists our audience might be familiar with. Uh, and they were arguing about something completely different about uh, you know whether or not we'd have a hard or soft takeoff with AI. The foom argument, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then all of a sudden, in the middle of this argument, there's almost like a public service announcement for cryonics, where they've been they've been disagreeing the whole time about this issue of AI, and then all of a sudden they're like, well, one thing we agree on is cryonics, and you should sign up for cryonics for X, Y, and Z reasons, and. I hadn't given the issue much thought before then, even though I'd encountered it. And seeing two smart people that I respect arguing and then all of a sudden agree about something right. made me two think... Two smart people yeah. who we respect coming together on this issue. It's, uh, it's sort of surprising even to them. It made me think, well, why haven't I given this more attention? This is obviously relevant to this podcast, to the future. I mean, cryonics is basically the promise that you might live to see the future, even if you die. <laughs> right. A lot of the foundational immortality discussion arose in the 60s with the first talk of cryonics. To us, you know, who are interested in life extension, cryonics is the first life extension technology that's like explicitly intended to be so. That's not just medicine that's getting put into place. Well, exactly. Because, you know, as much as we would like the life extension technology to show up in our lifetime, it may not. And if it doesn't, then this is one possible insurance plan. Right. Now, before we get into more detail, a uh, quick announcement, which is that uh, we are going to be taking a short break from the podcast following right. this episode. This will be the last episode for a little while, maybe a month, I'd say. The podcast is going to be chronically suspended, let's say. We're going to put this podcast in a deep freeze. On ice. And revive it in about a month's time. We took a break once before. It's something we're probably going to continue to do periodically, but right. we are committed to doing the podcast and we have some pretty exciting guests on the horizon. So we will be back relatively soon. Yeah. But for now, the topic at hand, cryonics. I suppose if you listen to this podcast, you probably know basically what we're talking about. Or if you've seen Futurama or, right? I mean, this is something that's in popular culture exactly. more so than maybe even some of the, our other topics. The basic concept is you take a person's body or in some cases just their head and you preserve it at a very low temperature uh, in hopes that that person can be revived at a future date, assuming better medical technology than we currently have. So it's essentially freezing bodies, to put it in really stark, non-scientific terms, rather than burying or cremating them or doing the traditional things you would do when someone dies in order to yeah, hopefully revive the person in a future time. Uh, so this is obviously a super speculative process where we're not certain going in if we're giving the future people what they need to do the job. I mean, this is a bet. This is definitely it's a, a bet. bet. It's, right. it's not guaranteed to work. I think it's a bet that you might want to take because obviously if you don't take the bet, you're going to die and be gone forever. And if you do take the bet, you have a chance of winning a lot of additional life. You could live 500 or 5 million more years than you would have otherwise lived if this actually works and you can be revived. Right. If they burn your body or if it's eaten by worms, the information is definitely lost. If they freeze it, it might be lost, but it might not be. I think I alluded to already the fact that you might preserve the whole body, but you also might do what's called a neuro preservation, which means you just preserve the head. Right. And this uh, is where the joke in 
Futurama comes from when they have the cryonically preserved heads of all kinds of famous people showing up and doing cameos on the show. Now, why would you pick one over the other? I think is an important question. So, Neuro... So, the advantages of picking only the head seem pretty clear, actually, right? Well, it's cheaper. It's a lot smaller than the whole body, right? So, it's going to be a lot easier to store. And it's really where most of the me is, right? The things that make you you, the identity, the memories and things like that. As far as we can tell, most of what you are is your brain. Right. Now, again, aside from being cheaper, I think a lot of people who might go for a neuropreservation option would argue that, you know, if I'm, I don't know, 88 when I die and get frozen, then, you know, my body's probably junk at that point anyways. Right. In this magical nano-enabled future that I'm going to be revived in, won't they be able to grow a new body? Wouldn't that be trivially easy? And I think that's something that is interesting to sort of interrogate because it really depends on like sort of what's wrong with you and how quickly you think that's going to get cured. Also, I think it depends on whether you're the kind of person who would basically prefer to be scanned into a computer anyway. And you're not actually thinking that you're going to be revived from cryostasis. You're more thinking you're going to be scanned in the future. Well, this is, yeah, right? the, uh, this is an issue that's complicated that I, I, don't, I don't know if we're going to get deep into this now. But yes, I mean, if you preserve the brain, that means that that brain itself may be revived, but it also means that at least your brain information survives. And that, you know, you can Maybe, also, conti- right. you can also, well, hopefully, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the whole concept here. Right. And that you could then continue perhaps as an emulated brain, or they could use that information in some other way. Right. I think people who are doing neuropreservation, for the most part, are hoping, at least, that essentially a new body will be grown and then attached to their current brain. But who knows? I mean, that's a personal preference thing. I guess this goes to this whole philosophical question of do you need the same brain matter to be the same person or is the pattern of the brain enough? Right. Or either of those things enough if you have 500 years of time in between when you fall asleep and when you wake up. I mean, I think there's it's a very complicated question. Well, it feels silly to argue about continuity when that many years pass. There's a level on which continuity would be an utter lie anyway. (laughs) So even if you experience it, it's false. Now let's talk about uh, another advantage possibly of only preserving the head that has been claimed by certain people. Okay. And I should just say right now, like I just started learning about this field recently, so I'm by no means an expert. But what, from what I can tell, one of the arguments is that in a neuropreservation where you're only preserving the head, that's requiring focus on just the head. And that extra attention may in some cases give you access to better technology for preserving the most important part, which is the brain anyways. Now, that might be sort of a false choice because it depends on the technology that's available, but there have been situations in the recent past where you would get better treatment if they were only focusing on the head than trying to preserve a whole body, which is obviously much larger. Right, and and very complex. Now, for full body preservation, the arguments are, well, why not? Certainly, if you can, uh, there seems to be quite a lot to recommend just using the body you have. There might be some future scenarios with certain types of technology where it might be easier to revive a person when you have the full body. This is all speculative. Nobody knows what type of nanomedicine will be available in the future and what exactly it can and can't do. So it may be an asset to have a body to start from and then repair that body then to start from scratch. I could see that going either way. I mean, I think you could make the argument that starting from scratch might be easier, but really who knows. Um, The other thing is that there is information stored in the body. Some information that probably is stored in the body is the exact mapping to your various 
muscles and limbs and so on from your brain, right? Yes. So if you get a new body when you're revived, you may require a lot of physical therapy and at, so at on. At the minimum, yeah, yeah. To actually be able to control that new body. But they also might be able to synthesize all that, right? I mean, it really just depends on the level of technology we're talking about. Might mm-hmm. be able to just look at the actual brain, figure out what the mappings are supposed to be in reverse, and just create those. Right, and we, again, don't know if that's possible. We just don't know, yeah. But you could cover your bets, I suppose, by preserving the whole body. Now, at this point, let's rewind a bit uh, and talk about where this idea comes from, which is... Because this is a bit older in some ways than than some of the things we've been talking about. Our history begins in 1962. That's right. And this is one of those ideas, you hear about this a lot, that has kind of two co-inventors, two people essentially came up with the same thing at the same time. The person who's normally credited as the father of cryonics is, is Robert Ettinger. Right who published a book in 1962 called The Prospect of Immortality. But there's another guy, Evan Cooper, who in the same exact year published a book called Immortality Physically, Scientifically Now. And again, both these books lay out the basic concepts of cryonics. The reason Evan Cooper, I think, is not seen as much as the father of cryonics is he later sort of gave up on the idea, from what I can tell. Got it. But he was, I think, more active in the beginning. In 1964, it's Cooper that establishes the Life Extension Society and actively starts trying to make cryonics a practical reality. And in the meantime, Ettinger's book, which is The Prospect of Immortality, and this might be another reason, again, why he's remembered more, caught the attention of Isaac Asimov and some other people and was republished and given some extra publicity. It wasn't until 1967 that someone was actually cryopreserved, and that was uh, Dr. James Bedford, who was cryopreserved on January 12th, apparently was a psychology professor, and apparently Bedford Day is a cryonics holiday. Yes, every January 12th, cryonics enthusiasts, all 17 of them. And what do you do on cryonics day? Do you eat ice cream or something? (laughs) That's good. I think we should have ice cream. Which is weird on January 12th, but I guess for cryonics that you do the weird thing right we should maybe we should do a little bedford day this year and have a little celebration that's true Some january 12th over. is coming up it's coming up kind of like it we can educate people about cryonics and give them ice cream and talk to them about how death is uh, a tragedy it's a good excuse to eat ice cream in the winter it is and to hassle people about <laughs> hassle people about cryonics <laughs> which i think will just be fun to do even in jest i read um on alcor's site they have a pretty great uh, kind of long list of uh, various early failures. And I read kind of extensive summary of what happened to Bedford because he was frozen when they really didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> and so I mean, he, he went around to, uh, I think they said like a dozen different institutions before he landed at Alcor like 20 years later. So who knows what kind of shape he's in, basically. Yeah, I mean, if they can bring Bedford back, I think that would be the absolute triumph of cryonics. Because sure. he's probably the worst and will continue to be one of the worst I mean, yeah, people. you would hope. You'd hope they're getting better with each one. So obviously there was a lot of mistakes early on and there was a lot of just experimentation to try to figure out how to even do this. But back to the, the basic history thread right. here. So it was 1967 when Bedford went under and then uh, what's the next like big event? Well, so it was in 1976 that Robert Ettinger the bicentennial. co-founded the Cryonics Institute, which still remains in existence existence today and is actually one of the two major providers that you can go to currently that's active. And he remained president of that organization until 2003. 
So Ettinger really committed to this idea. So where are we today? So at this point, um, not many people are actually cryopreserved. You know, under 300 people are frozen in the world. Uh, they're all either in the U.S. or Russia, and the vast majority are in the U.S. Less than 3,000 people are even signed up, from what I can tell. And that is not a large number. So, right. so given, this is not a normative activity at this time. Given this that this was niche. founded in 1962. It's not catching on too uh, It's not caught on. Yeah. To just defend these organizations a little bit, like I don't think you can probably assert that they are, they're not making money off of this. These are nonprofit organizations. Right. They don't have a lot of people joining them in large numbers. Now, it may take off in the future when these technologies seem to get better who knows but this is done by people who actually believe this yes yeah now whether or not they are correct to believe so is a different issue but i think you know these are enthusiasts these are people that are running these organizations that have their own family members stored in them in many cases and you know i believe that they're authentically doing this for reasons that are, are based in in their own beliefs anyways <laughs> Yes, I think that's very clear. This is a small and and sincere group. Uh, that doesn't make them right, and it doesn't mean that they're going to be financially solvent in the future. But I, I don't think that Max Moore or uh, these other guys uh, at Cryonics Institute are hucksters or snake oil salesmen. They they definitely think that what they're doing is the revolution that that they claim it to be. Now the the two main U.S. providers are the Cryonics Institute, that's based in Detroit, Michigan and Alcor, which is in Scottsdale, Arizona. Perhaps not surprisingly, the majority of people that are signed up for cryonics are male. Hmm. I don't know why that is, but it seems like the majority of people in the transhumanist futurist community are also male. So I'm sure it's the same demographic bias that causes that, causes this. Yeah. But interestingly as well, the majority of people that are actually preserved mm -hmm. cryonically are female. Oh, what causes that? Well, the explanation that I saw for that, which I haven't exactly fact-checked, but makes a certain kind of amusing sense, is that it's sons who cryopreserve their mothers. <laughs> so basically males sign up for this, males yeah. get into this, uh -huh. and then their and then moms, their moms to are up. close to dying, and they say, hey, ma, have you heard about this thing called cryonics? I'm signed up for it, so... Um, okay, so let's go through how the basic process works. And by works... We mean how they how they reduce your temperature. Yeah, I mean, how does cryonics work? Right. I mean, I'm not saying whether or not it will revive you in the future. As far uh, as we know, that has not been proven. Here is the process. But here's the process they do. Right. Now, first, first of off, all, you die, right? Now, first off, you die, and that's a complicated thing, actually, because death, <laughs> death is not a clear boundary, um, and there's many different types of death, right? There's clinical death. Clinical death means that you're blood circulation, and breathing stops. Right. So observable factors that, that determine that you're alive basically disappear. Now, that doesn't mean that you're actually dead because things like CPR can bring you back from so-called clinical death. So right. that used to be a hard boundary in the past and is no longer a hard boundary today. Right. At some point, there's legal death. Now, this is just a legal construct. I mean, this is just a official of some kind makes a pronouncement that you are quote-unquote legally dead. Yes, yeah, so that's meaningless. Which that just means they've determined that there's nothing else that they can do for you. Probably clinical death has happened at that point, and they're just saying, we're not going to try to bring you back. Even if we could, it would be pointless. Now, the death that matters the most to cryonics enthusiasts yeah. is what's called information theoretic death. So this is the most absolute version of death 
that one can pose, which is this is an irreversible destruction of the information in your brain. So we're talking about burning the body or worms eating it, that kind of thing? This is, there would be no way for even the most advanced future civilization to reconstruct you or anything that's even remotely like you because there just isn't enough information left on this planet. Right. And since most of that information is clearly stored in your brain, if your brain is burned because you asked to be cremated, then that would probably count as information theoretic death. Right. Barring some like there's no very magical civilization that we can come up with that's going to get that information back. Exactly. So that's what people who are going for cryonics are holding out for. They're saying, yeah, okay, clinical death, legal death. These are just constructs. As long as the information in my brain, the pattern is preserved in some fashion, it's possible at least that you could bring me back. Right. Now, the, the, here's the tricky part. Once clinical death happens, uh, which is the end of blood circulation and breathing, then damage starts happening to the cells in the body. They're, not, they're being deprived of oxygen. Something right. called ischemia sets in. Okay. And then someone has to declare legal death, right? And it's because we don't really have laws that allow for euthanasia or for cryopreservation right. to happen before you're actually dead, you have to wait for all this to happen. So the person has to have clinical death probably before they get declared legally dead. And then you immediately want to start this cryonics process, but inevitably there's going to be some delay. And the goal is you want to minimize that delay as much as possible because the second there's not oxygen going to the cells in the body, you're ha- having damage set in. And that damage may be preventing you from coming back. Right. Well, so that damage is at the very least going to be making it harder to bring you back in the future, but at the worst, it could be destroying information about you that's critical. Yeah, I mean, literally every minute you may be losing part of yourself. Who knows? I mean, this is, you know, think about how brain damage works, you know, when you're drowning or something like that. When you're deprived of oxygen, you can, if you get unlucky, have very severe brain damage very early. But at the same time, they have brought people back from from drowning. That's true. And that have been okay. So that's why I think there's some reason to believe that this is possible. But you certainly can't wait too long. But this is like a major risk factor where like every second increases your risk of catastrophic damage. Exactly. A large amount. So one of the things that needs to be administered as soon as possible is CPS, which is stands for cardiopulmonary support, which is different from CPR because there's no resuscitation. So basically this is just false uh, circulation. Right? Yeah, exactly. They're they're here to support your tissues so that they don't die off, but they obviously don't want you to become conscious again. And in fact, from what I could tell looking at Alcor's information, they actually administer things like propofol to make sure that there's no way that you become conscious again, because that's certainly not something you want at that point. Right. They just want to make sure your tissue's not dying off. Right. And then the next step is, you know, they've got to, to lower your temperature very quickly, Right. Now, they're not, they don't want to go below freezing uh, because that's going to cause ice to form. That's going to cause further damage. But they want to get your temperature low, right? They right. want to slow down everything that's happening in your body. So you want to cool down the body to... The lowest temperature you can get to... Exactly. Without causing ice to form. And then they need to transport you to the actual cryonics facility. Now, a question you might ask is, who's handling all this other stuff in the meantime? Because right. you may not die within range of one of these cryonics facilities. Right. Now, 
some of these pranics facilities recommend that if you know that you're going to die soon, if you have advanced warning, right. that you spend your last months in Scottsdale, Arizona, <laughs> or in Detroit, Michigan, which don't sound like particularly great uh, spots to die in. I but mean, Scottsdale, Arizona is basically a place that's set up to die in. I don't know what else you'd do there. Uh, I've never been there, so... It's it, like, um, it's kind of like Florida, but it's in Arizona. That sounds okay. Golf courses and, you know. All right, sounds good. It's you good, sold me. Good place to die, I think, for the average folks. So, they, you know, they recommend that you get there... Yeah. Uh, ...so that they can very, very quickly... Now, I mean, that may not be possible, in which case a local team may have to do what's called standby, which means, you know, be on hand wait for hospice to show up, wait for someone to declare you legally dead, and then immediately move in and start giving the CPS and cooling you down and so on. Right. And really, you know, there's different ways to arrange for this, but I think if you were serious about cryonics, this is something you would have to consider because if you allow the delay times to be too large, it's right. just, it's not, there's no point. Well, you're, you're risking, again, catastrophic loss of, of information to where it would, yeah, it would be useless. So then they, they transport you to the actual cryonics facility, and that's where they administer the cryoprotectant, which is basically antifreeze. Right. They essentially replace your blood with antifreeze, with from antifreeze, what I can tell. And they do this to avoid uh, those crystals uh, from forming uh, as they lower your body to below freezing temperature. Right. And this is the point that they, they lower you to extremely low temperatures, like negative 196 degrees Celsius, which is the boiling point of liquid nitrogen. And the cryoprotectant that they administer to prevent the ice crystal formation is probably toxic and probably does some additional damage. But they're thinking that that damage is nothing compared to, you know, the damage that would happen from, say, the ice crystals. Well, certainly it's less than the damage that would happen due to ice crystals. Whether it's damage that can be dealt with on the other side is basically totally unknown at this point. Now, the old technology would lead to some ice crystals forming anyways. Uh, The newer technology apparently can achieve what's called vitrification, which is cooling the body or the tissues, specifically in the brain in this case, which is what matters the most, without any crystal formation at all, and essentially turning the liquid in the body to almost like more of like a glass-like substance that doesn't you know, have the problems of ice, but that preserves the structure of everything. So that vitrification process is very ideal for this. Now, it's still not something that we have any demonstrated case of people being able to reverse. Right. But it would seem to preserve the information in the best possible way that we know how. Yeah, at the moment, it seems to be the best we've got. Now, apparently, the way that then the body gets taken on, this is now more right. of a so legal concern. Right, let's talk about like how this is even possible. Yeah. Because our society is not set up to try to preserve people indefinitely. So they have to use kind of a loophole. Right, so this is the uh, Uniform Anatomical Gift Act. Which is basically an organ donation legislation. That's what it's primarily used for. Right. Uh, And it allows organizations like Alcor or the Cryonics Institute to accept and actually own human bodies. Right. So that's really what you're doing legally speaking, is you're donating your whole body. You're donating your body to them in the way that you would if you're donating it to science, like to be dissected by medical students. Sure. Or to have your organs given off. Or to have your organs harvested. Right. So that's obviously quite different from the reality of the fact that you want to, you know, use your body again. <laughs> you want to continue to own it. Right. And you want that ownership to be restored with your wishes followed. 
you know, it's interesting that this is operating under a loophole. I mean, this does seem like something where if, if in a future where cryonics caught on and more than, you know, 250 people were actually frozen, right. then you would assume so that some out. specific law regarding cryonics would be created and it wouldn't have to use this. Now, the last and final step in the process is, of course, storage. So once your body's been infused with cryoprotectant solution, once you've been cooled down to extremely low temperatures, then you're essentially put into a giant thermos. Right. A giant doer, as it's called. <laughs> and if it's a whole body preservation, then you're actually upside down. That's because your brain is the most important part. So you put that at the bottom and the off chance that the liquid nitrogen you're being stored in right. uh, gets too low, then the last thing to thaw will be your brain. Right. So that seems smart. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, no electricity is actually required to maintain the low temperature. This is just liquid nitrogen that boils off slowly. Apparently, the current technology is pretty good at minimizing the boil-off rate. They do have to refill it every once in a while, and I think that's the major cost of preserving people. Right, and in the previous failures, they had failed to refill them. These are failures back in the 80s? Back say? in the 70s, yeah. Or 70s, okay. Yeah, yeah. Early, early failures were done basically because they didn't have people checking frequently enough to fill up the tanks, and, and basically they let them go out. But it seems like the technology now is a lot better than that. Right. And these cryonics institutions, they don't refer to the bodies as corpses. They refer to them as patients because, again, their concept of death is different than the legal concept. Right. Well, yeah, it's going to make it a lot easier to work there if they're called patients. So I think that makes sense for them. But until we start seeing these people revive, they're Schrodinger's corpses, you know, they're, they're neither dead nor alive. Uh, okay. The the man in the thermos is in an undetermined state. He's in an undetermined state of living, exactly. Okay. Uh, now, we've mentioned the providers. We've mentioned at least the U.S. providers, the Cryonics Institute and Alcor. And, you know, an obvious question is, what on earth does this cost? Because it sounds like, you know, this is a halfway decent gamble. It's probably not going to work, it seems like, but it might work. And if it does work, I might, you know, live to be, you know, 5 million years old. The payoff old. is huge. Yeah. If the, if the cost of entry is low, it just seems like it's like a lottery ticket. You can't win if you don't play. You don't think you're going to win if you're rational, but you know you won't win if you are eaten by worms. So it seems obvious, you know, unless you're just creeped out by the whole concept, if this was a low cost the argument is pretty strong, and if it's a high cost, then it's a little more suspect. So the cost as it currently stands is that for the Cryonics Institute, and they only do the full body preservation, for them, the cost is 28000 for the actual cryopreservation fee. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing about that number is it doesn't include any of this standby or transport type stuff. The medical stuff. So if you live far away, if you're nowhere near Detroit, Michigan, when you die... There could be significant additional costs. Right. I mean, you're going to have to make arrangements on your own, or you're going to have to make sure your funeral director that handles you knows what to do. Uh, these are all things that can be worked out, right. possibly Seems cheaply. Like this would happen before the funeral director gets involved, right? Well, the funeral director is often the person that on-site handles cooling your body uh, and also possibly even, you know, the perfusion of cryoprotectant. It just depends on what arrangements you make. Huh. I think, you know, having a funeral director who doesn't normally do this handle it is maybe not the optimal solution. It might be the budget solution. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, there are various ways to do this. And actually, there's an organization called Suspended Animation 
that oh, yeah, you can right that you can contract with that handles specifically these standby and transport concerns. So while it's twenty eight thousand to get a full body preservation with Cryonics Institute, it's not a full service. If deal. you really want the full service, you're either going to have to make other arrangements or you're going to have to go with a place like Suspended Animation to help you with that, and that mm-hmm. will incur additional fees. Now, they only offer full body. Apparently, the only reason they don't offer neuro is just PR reasons. Because it's of the whole... a little creepy with the head severance. The whole frozen head thing. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. I don't know. It's interesting to me that they're thinking about PR enough to make such a big decision like that. Now, but at Alcor, they do offer uh, the neuro, right? They offer the neuro, and the neuro is more expensive on the surface than the Cryonics Institute's full body. So the neuro is 80000 Yeah. And the full body is 200000 but they do it a little different, right? They offer uh, support. Yeah, they handle a lot of their the standby and transport stuff in-house. They have actual Alcor technicians that can travel to you and make sure this stuff is done right. So a lot of that is included in the cost, and that's a big part of why it's more expensive at Alcor. The other right. reason is I think they just have more overhead. I mean, the Cryonics Institute is a tiny organization. It's, you know, they maybe have one full-time employee, maybe two I mean, it's mostly that their members who have family members frozen there volunteer their time, mm. and that's you know effective enough for them. Mm. But uh, Alcor maintains a, a somewhat bigger organization than that, right? And I, I assume that overhead is also part of the reason that the costs are higher. In addition, you have to be a member, so you have membership dues. Now, for the Cryonics Institute, that's twelve fifty, basically a thousand dollars, two fifty paid all at once. If that's too much for you, you can pay in an installment plan that's roughly 120 a year. Mm-hmm. And then that's a lifetime membership after you pay 1250 Yeah, and that's a lifetime membership. So that's actually not that bad of a deal. No. Uh, Cryonics Institute is the, the budget version of this, for sure. Yeah. And Alcor is the high-end version. And again, as far as I can tell, the differences are what I just said. It's the standby and transport costs and possibly the extra overhead that Alcor right. has. right. As far as which to go with beyond that, I don't know. Do some research. Right. Well, and that's something we'll talk about in a minute, I think, because picking a winner is pretty important when, the, when this is what you're doing. Yeah, I think okay. so. Now, now, Alcor has membership dues as well, which are roughly between 40 and $50 a month, and then there's pretty significant discount for additional family members. Got it. And then interestingly, they will preserve your pet, but only if you're a member, and they'll do it at cost. That's weird. Now, people do freeze their pets, apparently. I find this strange, but okay. I would not do that. I imagine there's going to be better pets in the future. I mean... I want a future dog. I mean, as much as I might I, like my current dog. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a current dog, and if I did, I'm sure I'd like it, but I wouldn't freeze it. You can get another dog. Okay, so that sounds like, you know, not a crazy amount of money, but not a cheap amount of money either. Not the kind of thing you just pay and forget about. But the good news is you're you're dead, legally speaking, when you're paying these costs over the, the bulk of them. Mm-hmm. So it seems like you should be able to pay for this through life insurance. Right. And that's how most people do it. Got it. So you have to set this up correctly with the right life insurance provider, but that is how most people pay for these costs. And that means that what seems like a big chunk of money comes actually down to some sort of monthly fee that's worked out with So it's like a premium that you end up paying. Exactly. And then, so how how much about does that end up being? I mean, this is going to vary, right? Right. A ton. Uh, One estimate I saw from the Cryonics Institute was they were saying if you're a healthy middle-aged person signing up, that it might be about 30 bucks a month. So you just pay 30 bucks a month or thereabouts, and then the insurance takes care of the rest. It's not nothing, but it's also not crazy. 
Right. If your priority is living as long as you possibly can, it could be justified. I mean, it's what I pay for cell phone service every month. It's like, you know, it's a negligible amount, $30 a month. Right, exactly. So if, if the chance of, you know, living in a future paradise, however small, is worth the same as your cell phone bill, right? then you could afford this. Right. That said, you are going to have to do the legwork and all that standby and transport stuff, and you're going to have to deal with the, uh, the cultural tax of being a weirdo who signed up for cryonics and so on and so forth. And right. I feel like that's the more expensive cost here, right? Well, it is non-normative, right? And and people are definitely going to be creeped out a bit by it. And uh, you don't have to talk about it, of course. You can keep it private for the most part. But getting your wishes respected by your own family is going to be something of a challenge. I feel like cryonics is something that makes you want to share it, though, because ostensibly, sure. if you're going to be alive in the future, you might want your friends and you family to be most, there. as many of your friends and family as you can get to come along. So it sort of breeds evangelism. Right. So the likelihood that if you're really serious about this, you're going to be totally silent on it. I mean, it seems like the opposite is going to happen. Right. And it does seem like you'd want to try to convince those who are important to you to come along on the ride. Now, at this point, let's let's get into some of the questions that are sort of obvious here, which is like, will you even be revived in the first place? And, you know, there's not that much that they can do now. They can, you know, r- revive human embryos that are frozen. They can revive insects. They can revive nematode worms. They can revive some mammals, but only ones that are well above freezing. I think pigs, they can revive when they've been as low as 10 degrees Celsius, which is not nearly as low as it gets for uh, cryonics. So there's not a lot of proof of concept of bringing people back. Obviously, this is a a bet on future technology uh, that we don't have. And we don't know whether what we need is being preserved in the first place. And there, there are some attempts to bring some more scientific rigor to this. There's a scientist's open letter on cryonics, which comes out in support of this, which we'll link to in the show notes. There's a guy named Ken Hayworth, who has an organization called the Brain Preservation Foundation. That organization has a much more, I think, broad mandate to work on preserving the brain in general not just cryonics, but they are putting forward a a prize to try to hit certain benchmarks in terms of demonstrating that we're actually able to freeze and preserve the data that we would need that's important in the brain. Right. And trying to do that, say, for an entire mouse brain first, you know, as stage one. Got it. So there are some efforts to bring some scientific rigor to this. Obviously, this is something that needs to happen This is something that would make this whole thing a lot more palatable if we could see some sort of rigorous proof of concept that we were at least preserving the information. Obviously, this is all assuming that in the future we're going to have this incredible nanotechnology, basically. You know, when are we going to have that? Really, nobody knows. Or if that'll ever even work. I mean, we think it's theoretically possible, but we don't know for sure that 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 stuff's going to come. Exactly. Now, there's a guy, Robert A. Friedis, who wrote a book called Nanomedicine, or a series of books, actually. He's on record saying he wouldn't be surprised if the first cryonics revival was attempted by 2040 or 2050. That's pretty soon, but, you know, that's just a random prediction by some guy. So who knows? Right, right. Well, and he doesn't even go so far as to say succeed. Uh, (laughs) Yes. That's a pretty hedged bet (laughs) that he's making. Now, revival requires a lot of things to work right. You got to repair any damage that's happened to the cells from the freezing process, from ischemia, if you weren't cooled down quickly enough, from obviously whatever killed you in the first place. Well, that's part of it, right. I mean, 
I would like them to be able to freeze and revive a healthy person before I would sign up for this. But of course, it's not going to work until it can also interface with whatever it is that will cure you of whatever it was that was killing you at the moment that they froze you, which by definition, because of our society and because of the fact that you can't go into this willingly ahead of time, it's going to have been late stage. Whatever it was, it's got to get catastrophically bad before they'll freeze you. Yeah, if you go in with uh, with cancer, say, yeah, they have to be able to help you survive cancer, but also the cryonics itself. So it's a doubly hard challenge. And that's where this whole last in, first out concept comes from. So we mentioned early in the podcast about the first person froze, who is James Bedford, right. and how poorly that was handled because it was the early days, as you'd expect. Technology gets better. That's the whole concept here. Right. So that's where this idea of the last people into cryonics will probably be preserved the best. Therefore, they are likely to be the first out of cryonics. Right. The technology won't have to be as advanced to make that work. Exactly. Now, there's been criticism of this because there are other factors, such as the thing that was killing them in the first place. Right. Or how far away they were from Scottsdale, Arizona. Right. So, you know, that it's probably not a perfect scenario where the last person in is literally the first out. But generally speaking, I think that principle makes some They'll sense. They'll have to be a little bit more complex triage than that. But yeah, that does make some sense. And yeah, another thing that I was thinking about is cures to various diseases are obviously going to arrive relatively asymmetrically. So we may not be at the point where we have tech that can say cure cancer, but we may have a specific cure that treats, you know... Like a bad heart, like uh, like cardiac failure. So let's say we figure out how to do uh, 3D printed heart transplants in the next 10 years. That sounds not totally crazy. They're working on that now. Maybe they get a breakthrough or two and those start working, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So, but we still can't cure cancer. We're, no, we're not that much further along on cancer. It's going to be another 20 years before we have any idea what to do about cancer. But heart surgeries now are just getting routinely done. So obviously it's going to make sense to start pulling the people out who needed heart surgery. Right. And that's all assuming that the, the larger challenge of like reviving somebody from this very low temperature is solved. If that were also solved. Right. So it's interesting to think about when you're going into this, you know, when do you want to be revived? Do you only want to be revived if you can also be, you know, rejuvenated, made younger uh, with uh, advanced I would assume, yes. technology? Or do you want to, like, let's say, you know, you had a bad heart and you died. So like you're 45 years old, even, you're really young, let's say. And you okay, just, yeah. I just mean, had a heart attack. Right. And you were signed up for the cryonics, so you went into the thing and- now they can give you a new heart and they could restart you again. It's only been 10 years or 20 years. So uh, the world's not even that much different. You know, even though, you know, you'd be waking up with a lot of vulnerabilities and, you know, you wouldn't be guaranteed eternal life from that result. In a way, that's almost a better result than waking up 500 years from now and everything's incomprehensible to you. And sure, it's there's a lot of wonderful parts of that, but it'd be such a shock, you know? The thing is that if there's a couple of those fringe patients that are just ripe to be revived early, the second, again, one of them is revived, I mean, I think that triggers like a massive rush on this technology. I think you know, the second that this can be proven to work in a way that the layman can look at it and say, yep, that sounds like a good idea. Sure. Everyone will suddenly seriously consider it. Well, and I think we'll have a societal reaction to that. I mean, once it's clear that it works, right now, 100% of what's going on is it seems like quackery because there's no evidence it works, really. I mean, there's a lot of speculation as to why it might work in the future, but that's not the same thing. 
And if it works, if it really works, if you have a human being walking around saying like, oh yeah, I died 20 years ago. I had this thing done to me. Woke up last year. They had figured out how to fix me. I'm fixed. Feel fine. Uh, Glad I did it. Way better than being dead. And honestly, he might be like, I feel a little fucked up, but I'm having a conversation with you right now. So something worked. So I feel a lot better than if I wasn't here. I have aches and pains all over, and this is really weird, but I'm talking right now. (laughs) Right, right. That happens. He goes on the cover of Time Magazine or whatever, and yeah, the, the world will change. Like, the government, the healthcare providers, the society will take a stance on that, and I suspect the stance will be in favor. Let's talk about paying for revival, right? Because I think this is an obvious question. Right. It's easy to figure out how they pay for your freezing because it's your life insurance that pays for it. But then you're legally dead. And all the things you used to own and all the debts you used to have are discharged. And they go away. And they go to your heirs or whatever. Right. Which even brings up another issue, which is can you have assets once you're dead? And you can't. <laughs> I mean, not legally. No, there's not an easy way to do that. Now, on the Alcor website, they say that they've developed, they've had their lawyers develop what's called the Alcor Model Revocable Asset Preservation Trust. Right. So they've tried to engineer something that will provide you with some assets when you come out. Right. Which is a framework that you can give to your lawyer that will attempt to set aside assets for you. But I mean, this is obviously using loopholes. There's no real framework for doing this. Right. And as far as I know, it hasn't been you know ratified by court precedent. But I think the actual assumptions here are you will be revived and you won't need money because... In this magical nanotechnology future, we're expecting a totally different economy, right? I mean, this things should be pretty cheap at the point that they can even accomplish this kind of revival. I mean, that's the hope anyways. Now, you know, this is, again, this whole game of predicting a very far future. And right. It's just impossible to know uh, what the world's organizational schema will be then and whether... Whatever it is, whether we'll have sufficient goodwill toward the people coming out of cryostasis to uh, to provide them with whatever they need. Well, and this is why, like, I mean, you're giving ownership of your body to one of these institutions and their future financial solvency and or their... And leadership. Uh, and, their, you know, their culture there, yeah, yeah is and, important. And these places do, like we said, seem to be sincerely in favor of just extending lives because it's a moral good. But we don't have any guarantee that the people who are in charge of them now will be in charge of them in the future. We don't have any guarantee that they will be solvent. And uh, these are not giant organizations. They are pretty small niche organizations right now. So like a lot of startup technology fields, it's hard to pick a winner. It's hard to figure out who's going to still be around. Now, I might jump in here and say this is a good point to suggest that, you know, it's a vote of confidence for this technology when you sign up for it. Sure. So if you believe in the technology in the abstract, whether or not you believe in every single thing these organizations do, you could argue that if you have the money, putting your money into this is showing your support for it. And that's the only way that the technology is going to get better or that this is going to grow or this is ever going to become a truly viable thing. So, I mean, you got to be careful with the research that you do and and the place that you go with. But given that your alternative is just rotting in the ground and never coming back, you know, you could argue that, you know, investing some money in the best option that you can find maybe stirs greater support for it in the future. Sure. And people have been giving money to churches for that reason for some time. (laughs) 
And this seems better than a church. I agree. I think you have more likelihood of coming back because you are in a thermos at Alcor than because you have, you know, tithed at your local uh, house of worship. So it's a tricky situation because it seems like the kind of thing you would want to support the research into, even if you're not necessarily sold on the current version of the technology. And It's true. You could stand back and take the same money and then donate it to a place that you thought was, you know, furthering research in this area. Right. Uh, I think that would be a valid position you could take. Right, or you could buy the membership even though you probably wouldn't pull the trigger on it if you died tomorrow, just thinking, well, maybe what they're doing 25 years from now will be something I'd be okay with. Exactly. Now, back to the issue of will you be revived. I mean, one argument is you'll be revived because it will be cheap. Another argument that I find interesting is that sort of this chain effect of the last inpatients will be revived because someone will remember them. <laughs> Right? right, because they'll have recently been been put in, right, and then they will remember earlier family members or patients, and that they'll push for the revival of, and on back down the line, and that to me makes a certain amount of sense, and I think you can strengthen this by forming intentional packs with other people that are going in for cryonics, and people in fact do that. Right, while it's still a small enthusiast community, I think there's a high likelihood of people kind of trying to pull out their whole cohort. And just knowing who else was frozen around the same time as them and stuff like that. But as it grows bigger, it's going to be more important to make intentional, explicit pacts with other folks to try to preserve your memory. Now might be the time to to talk about what I think are the single biggest questions here, right? Which is, what are the scenarios under which you're revived? In deciding whether or not you should do this, this is what... Right. I inevitably How good think or about bad it. could this outcome actually be? Basically? Right. Yeah. Now, I think that fortunately for cryonics sake, the two most probable outcomes are number one, that society falls apart in some way. Maybe the human race even goes extinct. Maybe these organizations fall apart. I don't know. And they never bring you back. And so then who cares? I mean, you wasted some money while you were alive, but you were going to die anyways. So you just died the normal death that everybody's died since the beginning of humans. Right. And then the second probable scenario or possible plot relatively like makes sense scenario (laughs) is that they actually bring you back. And that kind of, I think, presumes that the future is radically improved in a lot of ways. Number one, they're honoring your wishes. They're bringing you back. Number two, they're able to bring you back. This implies they can cure aging. This implies medicine is and science Well, again, I'm not sure that it does, but it at least implies that they can cure whatever was immediately wrong with you. Well, no, I mean, I think just to bring you out of the cryonics freeze... It's just going to be so difficult that we're going to have to have advanced nanotech medicine. And you're likely to be frozen at a time when you're in your 80s. I mean, likely they're going to be bringing you back if they've also dealt with aging in some fashion. To me, it seems like when they're bringing you back, if that's possible, the future is probably good in other ways. Mm-hmm. So those are the things that I would rank as the most likely. Either you never get brought back because everything goes to hell or you get brought back in a Or world. just because you're not important to the future world in some way, right? Sure. I mean, and again, that's the same as regular death. Right. It's, um, just, it's just death, right. But then the second one is that if you are brought back, the future is quite possibly amazing. Right. But there now, is a third option. Yeah. Now, the third option is that you're brought back into some kind of unpleasant future. Now, the, the weird one about this is why are they bringing you back if the future is not going well? There are, I, I guess, you know, science fictional reasons you could posit right. for that. Well, and there's two, like, there's, this is a fork here because there's futures not going well in the sense that the values of the future are not compatible with you. 
Right. So you you have a bad time in the future. Right. But then there's also like the future's not going well in the sense that they bring you back, but they can't cure your health. That you're revived, but your, your revival is somehow from somehow flawed. Like, that just that seems like the least likely of all to me. Like, right. It's like well, that, again, why are they doing that? They'd have to. There'd have to be a reason. Unless you were like the number one test subject. Unless they were like, all right, we got to start somewhere, start and somewhere, we're right. starting with John Perry. Right. You're like, the last in, John. <laughs> so we're just going to try it out. We got it to work on a dog. You're next. I mean, it, they're going to have to start with somebody. So. And then, so that could be a bad turnout in the same way that any kind of botched medical situation could be a bad turnout. You could end up in pain or brain dead or... I know that you can like stipulate you know, certain contractual things and God knows if they'll honor them. Well, right. And again, then that's more kind of complex guesswork of whether they'll honor your wishes. But I feel like I would want to stipulate that I not be the first generation of revivals. (laughs) At least version two. Uh, That's funny. Yeah. I mean, it seems more likely that they'll revive you because in their minds, the future is going well and they have cured your disease. And now they can plug you into their new future world that, they're very excited to share with you and that for whatever reason the way that that world is set up is not compatible with your preferences and you just do not like it right now it's interesting to think about what those things might be they may not share your values you may not have any rights anymore right. you may they not- might not have ego borders in this world <laughs> I mean, who knows it's just like a post singularity nanotech horizon sort of future that we're talking about now where we could really have quite different experience of the universe i mean i think that's true uh and you know this is so speculative it's hard to even like pinpoint this but if there are resources in this world you wouldn't have any of them i mean you would be one would think you'd be the bottom of the totem pole now i mean i don't know you might be a fascinating cultural historical artifact to whatever beings exist I suppose that's one outcome. Perhaps you can turn that into some cultural value of some kind. But it seems like a more likely outcome is whatever society you're entering, if it's still a hierarchical one, which that even is up for grabs. I mean, who knows that you'd be at the bottom of that hierarchy. You would have, you would have no idea what's going on. You'd be behind on every possible metric. You'd have zero resources and you just don't know what that world is. Now, I mean, if again, if it's a post-scarcity utopian paradise where we, you know, all operate as a collective and, you know, it's basically a controlled anarchy, then yeah, of course that's wonderful. But, you know, how do we know? And of course there's the much, much worse option, which is that for some reason they're bringing you back to torture you. I mean, I think this is highly unlikely. Right. But perhaps bad enough, you know, as a fringe outcome to consider. Right. Because the whole kind of thing here is that this is a low likelihood of a very high reward. But if there's an extremely low likelihood of a really bad punishment, like eternal torture by being revived by some sort of sadist for some reason, even if it's really hard to think of a logical way that that goes down, it's so terrible. It's like literally hell. It's worth considering that you might not want to put yourself at that state of vulnerability in terms of signing away your legal rights and all of that. I talked about this when I had Calum Chase on about this idea of, you know, a sadistic AI. And I I really think this is low on the possibility scale, but it's just so bad that... But even just a sadistic human who just happens to buy your bodies... And it's just like, I'm going to thaw out some humans and torture them because I own them and I can and the law allows it for whatever reason. They're legally dead. They're not persons that are alive. It's not the most likely thing that I can think of, but it's not so crazy that I can rule it out as something that would happen. 
Now, the, the flaw in this argument, I think, a little bit is that you could kind of apply this argument to life extension in general. And we've talked about that before, which is it, if in a world where they can extend your life, you know, eternal torture becomes possible. Yes. And you better hope that culturally it doesn't happen. If you can extend someone's life without their, against their will, then yeah, then you could just tie somebody up. I mean, ostensibly, there'd be strong legal protections against that. So, you know, I don't know for sure, but it seems like there'd be ways to prevent people from doing that from regular living citizens that are, you know, recorded and tracked and have uh, nanobots floating right. around in their bloodstream. Now, the difference between living, like living through life extension technology arriving right. versus like being revived in a time of life extension right. is that in the first scenario, you see it coming. Yes. You have some kind of cultural read on where the legal system, where yep. the governmental system is. Yep. And if you think you see a sadistic future coming, then you can opt out. Whereas with the cryonics, there's this big discontinuity where if things went gravely awry, right. you well, wouldn't really be there even to Even more than stop that, it. I mean, you've, you've signed away your agency. So if you're living through it, you can actively choose to be part of it. Whereas if you are signed up for cryonics, then it's, it's very much a roll of the dice when you get brought out and you're not necessarily going to be brought out in a situation that you're happy with. It, it seems clearly preferable to live through the change. Um, and, you know, just your your periods of vulnerability are far lower. I mean, you sleep every night. Uh, you know, that's a period of vulnerability, but it's a lot less than being unconscious continuously for many, many years. Now, to me, here's the thing about this whole issue, right? Or one way to look at it is, mm-hmm. is in, in the original post that first got me thinking about this. Yeah. Uh, the one that Eliezer wrote, not the one that Robin Hansen wrote. Mm-hmm. You know, he talked about cryonics positively as being a systematic statement that you that you value human life. Yeah. And I think, you know, we Particularly had... Particularly your own. We had, well, yes, but it's that you also value life in general. I think that was what he was going for, was the more, you know, altruistic, you know, facing the world aspect of it. Mm-hmm. But we also had, you know, Sarah Perry on this podcast. Yeah. And Sarah Perry talked about right to die. And we also know that she's part of the antinatalist movement. These are, you know, people who question the idea of having children. Right. And, I, and the at, ethics of children. Yeah, well, yeah. And at the foundation of, you know, her philosophy, I, I don't want to, you know, speak for her. Right. But the impression I get is, you know, questioning the idea that life is valuable. That life is inherently valuable. Essentially, you know, a good life is valuable and a bad life is shit. And, and, right. and it's torture. It right. completely depends upon the subjective experience of the sentient being that has the life. And if life is not inherently good, uh, and in fact, one could argue, I don't know how you would empirically test this, that, you know, subjectively speaking, maybe on the whole life is bad. Maybe the suffering in the world vastly outweighs the positive experiences. Right. And, and then on balance, life is not good. Life is now, again, in the best of all possible futures, that balance could shift. But I think to assume that life is inherently good and more life is inherently better, I don't know. I mean, I think that depends. I think that needs to be a personal choice, obviously. And like, as like someone who like embraces transhumanism, like I want that option right. for myself right. specifically, right? Uh, and and for as many other people as possible. But well, consent is a big part of this, right? We definitely don't want people frozen and revived into alien futures who didn't want that. Well, and you're consenting to this, but you're consenting to this so with so little knowledge of the world you'd be revived into sure. that it's almost not really consent. 
right? I mean, it's like, it's, it's really... You can un- only consent so much because you know so little. It's extremely uninformed consent sure. is what it is. Right. And is your life valuable in this future world? I don't know, right? So, I mean, I think it's a hard question. Now, I mean, this is getting pretty negative about cryonics and maybe more so than I even want to represent, but these are, these are issues that I, I worry about. I think one more positive spin on it is that by signing up for this, you're you know, really signifying that you believe in a better future, that you have hope, that you're thinking long-term about society. Right. Obviously, if you invest in cryonics, you really want civilization to succeed. You want technology to advance. You want people to bring you back. And one could argue that if a lot of people invested in cryonics, they might think more long-term about things like the environment and long-term sustainability of the human race and existential risks and so on. If people start believing that it is possible to live 500, 5 million years and so on. Right. So I think that that is maybe the argument where this does make more sense. But that's more of an aggregate argument. It's more of like, cast your vote for this right? in hopes that other people do. And, and Well, the and- other thing is, if there were political support for it, I think that would change a lot of things. If there was a law that had been tested that did preserve your uh, wishes and your assets in the case that you decide to do uh, cryopreservation. Or even further, if there was a law that allowed people who had certain kinds of inoperable diseases to essentially be euthanized by their cryonics people. Well, that's an interesting thing, right? Right? Because obviously this would work better if you could cryopreserve people that were still... That were still just barely living. Yeah. And we can't do that because of our legal framework. But again, you know, once you actually have a monkey that's been frozen and unfrozen and you've seen the reviving work, uh, I think that conversation will change. Well, specifically on this issue of euthanasia, there's a story that I came across that I want to share. Okay. It, it has sort of an amusing, ironic twist to it. Okay. So this guy's a mathematician. His name was uh, Thomas Donaldson. And he fought in the California courts for specifically this right to be cryopreserved, you know, before his brain cancer got worse. Right. Because brain cancer, of course, is destroying your brain. So as it's getting worse, it's actually destroying the information. It's literally destroying your personal identity. That's what he was concerned about. Got it. And apparently he lost the case, but then the cancer went into remission. So it's a real like good, bad. Well, and it brings up, I think, an important point, which is that on the one hand, it would work better if you let people euthanize themselves. On the other hand, some people would, you know, essentially be committing suicide by cryonics. I mean, obviously to be revived later if that's possible, but still... We talked to Sarah Perry about this and, you know, we're people who basically buy that it's in society's interest to allow seeing people to end their life if that's what they choose. But obviously mainstream society is not on board with that. And for reasons that are, are easy to understand, I mean, there's an obvious social cost to people dying. And if they're dying at their own hand, you know, we all feel responsible. And it's interesting to think of people, you know, committing euthanasia for the sake of cryonics, when maybe six months later, what they had would have been cured as sort of like the ultimate, you know, ironic failure of allowing people to choose when they are cryopreserved. But along those lines, I mean, that relates to one of my concerns about, say, signing up for cryonics myself, which is the opportunity cost of that money. I mean, the, the, the cost seems reasonable, right? Right. But I don't have limitless funds. Right. What if I take that same amount of money? Right. And invest it and grow it and use it to, you know, purchase actual life extension technologies, 
as they become available as we get further into the biotech revolution. In other words, maybe I'm better off saving my money that I would have spent on cryonics to literally try to live forever. Just to try to live longer now. Now, I mean, arguably you want both, right? You want to have money for life extension treatments while you're still unfrozen and you want the sort of insurance plan of the cryonics. But reasonably speaking, if you have a limited budget, it's not clear that you necessarily can afford both of those things. Right. And I think there's just an inherent aversion to dealing with cryonics for the same reason that people are averse to dealing with burial arrangements and other things that, you know, put you more starkly facing your own mortality. Basically. Oh yeah, researching this has has been creeping me out. I mean, I, I, I have a relatively high tolerance for this stuff, and you know, if I didn't have to do a podcast on this, I don't know if I would have read as much as I did. Because you start talking about being upside down in a thermos full of liquid nitrogen, and you know the the mind recoils a little bit at, you know, such stark thoughts of mortality. Right, exactly. And it's, you know, I mean, I was relatively convinced by both Robin and Eliezer's articles, but at the same time, I, I thought immediately after reading them, like, yeah, that's basically all right. I, I basically buy that, but I don't think I'm going to sign up for cryonics today. I think I'm probably going to put that off. Yeah, for now, I'm cryo-curious. Uh, yeah, cryo-curious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I've only started this looking into it. Yeah, that's yes. the thing. Is, We're uh, going to have that be the tagline for this uh, when we share this. Sure. Are you cryo-curious? <laughs> Click here. Yeah, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm certainly not going to sign up for this tomorrow. I think I'm, I'm like aware of it in a way I wasn't before, and I'm going like to keep an eye on it. But yeah, so I don't know... Uh, we opened with the question of, you know, should you sign up for cryonics? And the it's- answer is probably yes, but we don't think you're going <laughs> to. <laughs> well, we if you're anything like us anyway. I mean, I was basically, I'm basically convinced. I think you should. I'm convinced, but I'm not if leading my, by example currently. If my mom or dad said, do you think I should? I'd say, yes, you should. But I don't think I'm going to actually do it. <laughs> I mean, not right now. I might, I'm still leaving my mind open that I would potentially do it in the future. There's a number of reasons why this is just different from like living forever continuously. I feel like, yeah, it's probably still better than dying, but it's going to be super disorienting and strange at the absolute best, I think. Well, again, I think the future that revives people is probably a good future. On the whole, I agree. And yes, probably has probably better. strategies for that I'm not sure of. Acculturating I, you to their new environment. I'm not sure of that. I feel like, yeah, it might. But it also might just like have no reason not to revive you. So somebody who's interested in reviving people does it because they have the wherewithal to do it. And you have relatively low amounts of infrastructure for the people who come out. And again, I'd probably on whole take that. Kind of like veterans coming back from war. <laughs> yes. Like, there's like the department. There's a few people who of- care deeply about it and they're working with limited resources to do the best they can, but the result is not great. You know? There's like the, de- the cryonics affairs department yes. that's like notoriously bad about integrating people back yeah, into like, society. Exactly. There's like a, a government department of former persons where they're just trying to like get through the roles. Like their real job is just like bureaucratic. They have to just like check everybody off their list. And as soon as you get like a Mark of the Beast tattooed on you or whatever the future does, you know, a chip implanted in your guts, then they set you loose and you, you know, you, you, you maybe you can use future Google and just figure that out. But maybe you are utterly overwhelmed and it's like you're in Woody Allen's sleeper. I mean, I think there's so much value in a long life that includes consciousness continuity that it's like, 
unfathomable to me that anybody wouldn't want that if that was an option. But this, I could see somebody rationally just being like, no, that doesn't sound like something I want. I mean, this is clearly a backup plan. Yeah, as a backup plan to being buried, I prefer it to being buried. But I can't say I put it like that much higher up the list. Well, that's the thing is I think there are some objections that I think are not legitimate, right? So it's not legitimate to say this is like a crime against God or nature or like obviously well, silly yeah. things that we're not addressing. You can say that if you want, but I have no, I have nothing to say about that. And I, I think, you know, it's not that legitimate to say, well, it probably won't work because even the cryonics people admit that it might not work. It's more like if you do have the money, it's just a calculated gamble anyways, so why not go for it? Right. But I do think there is a legitimate argument to say that the actual state of the future, assuming a revival, is so uncertain that you don't, you can't say for sure whether you want to exist in it. Right. Exactly. I think, like, that's a legitimate thing. Now, I mean, we can assume that nanotechnology goes with a better society. I mean, the general trend of, you know, the so world So far, better seems, technology means better society. Yeah. Uh, but there's not actually any law of the universe that means that that is to continue. So I think it's absolutely possible we'd have a worse society by whatever my current today values are. But that's again where I then circle back to that whole self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thought of, you know, the whole idea that if a lot of people believe in a better future enough to say sign up for cryonics, because it is a pretty strong statement that you believe in the possibility of a better future, then maybe that makes that better future more likely to happen. Right. And also the society that is better is also more likely to be the society that is reviving people and respecting their wishes. You know, there are some societies that are possible to imagine where they're reviving people and they're not particularly better, like we talked about, but it does seem more likely that one that revives you is also one you'd want to live in, at least once you got over the initial shock. So, I mean, yeah, I guess I can sort of recommend it, but it's really qualified and I think... uh, Maybe we'll check back in on this you later. You know, I mean, this is definitely, like, I feel like I work pretty hard to, like, speculate about things without, like, letting the ick factor get too much in my way. But this is, I think, one of the few topics where I feel my own ick factor clouding my judgment. <laughs> I really want to turn away from this issue because death is so uh, intense. I and, feel that, too, and, that ick factor. But I think the strongest antidote for me that's been working pretty well uh-huh. is just to remind myself of how just icky death period is because that's well right that is really the cause of the a hundred percent of the ick factor is death itself and not the cryonics because if you start talking about funeral preparations in general it's the same exact it's the same feeling and so once you realize that it's like well this is a separate issue so i I mean i guess this is a good good place to put the podcast on ice and yeah who knows what it will be like when we bring it back in a future that we cannot predict exactly maybe we'll have a third co-host I don't think we're going to have a third co-host. <laughs> I'm just I saying. I don't have the it, technology for that. Th- it's totally uncertain. That's true. I mean, you know, anything could happen um, in the next month or Maybe two. Maybe Ted will have a lisp and I'll have a British accent. Uh, okay. All right. We're obviously, it's gotten too late and we're getting silly. Let's, let's, put in, let's put an ending on this. Okay. Thank you for listening. As usual, if you like the podcast and you want to support it, the best thing that you can do right now is to share our podcast and yes. tell people about it that might be interested Send post it to it. five friends put it on your face page your internet book your elo and you know 
contact us too. Tell us the innumerable ways in which we are wrong about cryonics or other episodes. Right, or tell us other things you'd like us to cover. That's been really great to hear some of that from other people. Ask questions and we'll do a listener question episode. We've done sort of semi versions of that, but it's been really fun. We got more questions. We do them all the time. So yeah, send those in. We make that a regular feature if we get enough questions for it. And if you use iTunes or Stitcher or any of those things uh, and you can drop us a review, that means a lot to us as well. You can reach us at uh, feedback at reviewthefuture.com or through our website, reviewthefuture.com. But a really easy way to also reach us is our Twitter, RTF underscore podcast. And uh, I think, is that it? I think that's all. That's all of our handles. Yeah. Thanks for listening. And we will see you guys soon. Uh, this year. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.